welcome to the Brain Tools Podcast, where you're going to learn how your brain works and how you can use it to level up your life. It's practical brain science for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Sam, a self-professed neuroscience nerd on a mission to share brain science with the world in words everyone can understand. And I'm Kieran, and I specialize in neuroscience at university and now run a metacognition education startup in Asia. Each episode, you walk away with six practical brain tools that you can use immediately. No fluff, just the good stuff with a side of banter. Plus, grab our show notes, the research, and tons of other free resources, including guides and classes, just by joining our growing Brain Tools community at braintools.mn.co. Best of all, it's totally free. But for now, the Brain Tools Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Brain Tools Podcast. Really excited to have you here this week. This week, you're going to learn a little bit about the neuroscience of relationships during COVID, why it's so much tougher right now to be in a relationship, plus you'll get six brain tools you can use with your partner, a workmate, or even your nan to feel a little bit closer to the people in your life at the moment. Kieran, how are you doing, my friend? I'm delightful, Sam. It is uh, it's Sunday. We're rounding it out nicely. And as always, looking forward to, to speaking today about relationships after our dating episode, which actually blew up oh, a little yeah. bit. Got a few, got a few messages about uh, the, the good old Tinder profiles and Bumble profiles and Grindr profiles. It was great. Yeah, it was. It was. Mom was slightly concerned, but we, that's a side note, totally a side note. Um, so yeah, we're talking a little bit more about relationships, but before we do do that, I just want to just want to acknowledge the the elephant in the room. Yes, we did miss a week, but it has been crazy for you and myself. That is correct. I will. Uh, I have to apologise to you uh, live here because been sick. Clearly not uh, taking care of myself as well as I should have. But uh, we did. Uh, we did miss that week. But we're back on. We're steering the ship. The ship is steering being steered ship. back is. again in the right direction. <laughs> we're going out of the tailwinds and this is a, a great episode this week we're talking uh about relationships so off the back of that episode we had last week where we were talking about tinder and and love we're going to encroach on that subject again but we're talking more about the strain in relationships right now uh, and the strain due to the covid stresses and like the stress of covid in the background adding all this and uncertainty and ambiguity well Big word there. Ambiguity into relationships. <laughs> so shout out to our well-being episode. If you haven't watched that one on stress, go you can go listen to that right now and figure out, you know, why COVID's so stressful. But they're really putting some pressure on relationships. And from a personal perspective, I do have the level this lockdown that I'm experiencing in Melbourne has been really tough on my relationship. Really, really tough. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Well, based on the, the things that are going on at, at right now, there's a UCL study, Sam, that came out saying that a quarter of yes. people have reported their relationships, both romantic and otherwise, have worsened over the lockdown. Yeah. And it's almost as if, you know, COVID-19 has forced relationships both uh, more, you know, romantic and otherwise into some weird situations. Like some people who are yep. just starting their relationships uh, have been forced to live together. Like I know at least six people that are, have been forced to live together during lockdown Maybe. and others have been put into long distance relationships. And I know that you've, you know, uh, your relationship has become long distance. So how would you say COVID has impacted yours? Not to get too well, deep and meaningful. <laughs> just open up a little bit. Yeah. I mean, tell you right, I didn't, didn't even know that about the UCL study. So that's, that's pretty interesting. Uh, well, it's kind of forced us into this long distance relationship, even though my partner is less than 50 kilometers away because of lockdowns uh, and some situations going on with exposure to COVID. We haven't been seeing each other for the last six weeks now. 
So it's, it's almost like we're, we're in a long distance relationship, which if anyone has been in one, if you've been in one, I have been before. It's really, really difficult, especially now that we're like relying on these new ways of communicating. There's, there's new digital ways of communicating. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And because communication in all the research we did, we've done for this episode, every sort of relationship is dependent on the ability to communicate well. And I'm wondering just based on what you said there, because you're now communicating digitally, how would you say your communication with your girlfriend has actually changed, if any? Well, I mean, the thing is we've, we've, we've lost that face-to-face communication channel. So now we're really relying on video calls and audio calls and text messages. And, yeah. and to be honest, it's like, it's, it is what it is. This is what we're currently dealing with, but it's definitely not ideal because you lose so much like, context and it's so much harder to emote with someone through a screen. And that's actually something we're going to cover a little bit later. Um, but I know it, it goes beyond relationship, romantic relationships too. Even with work colleagues, I started working remotely this year. And I don't really know about, about you, but just emoting to people through Zoom, through a video call or through our Slack team channel, it's so, so difficult because you just don't have the same connection there. And we are going to talk about why, but that's kind of been my experience with it so far. I actually totally agree with you because in Singapore at the moment, we've now, you know, able to go back to the office in, in drips and drags. And we just went back last week um, yep. for the first time in ages. And I, we counted together as a team how many times we've been in the same room for the entire year, twice. Wow. This was the third time. And we wow. were giving each other hugs because we were just like, and honestly, oh though, we God. talked about productivity yeah. habits, good habits in earlier episodes. But being, there is something to say, being in the same place with people you do care about and spending that time together, you are so much more productive, so much more um, emotionally elated is the word I'd probably use because you're yep. right there and, and seeing someone being with someone, all those tonal cues you spoke about. Yeah. Undervalued, but clearly now at a premium given everything we've been through this year. Yeah. It just makes you appreciate being around people so much more. I mean, I, that's how I feel. Um, but we are going to talk about some brain tools for how you can circumvent some of this. One of which you are kind of doing right now. So take a guess, think about what it's going to be later on. But before we do that, we should probably start talking a little bit about the background of, of love and relationships like we did last week as a bit of a recap. And you did an awesome job of explaining it. Do you want to quickly run us through how it all works? Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we sort of discussed last week in uh, the neuroscience of dating and courting, great word, love courting, um, but that, that romantic and passionate love, uh, it's a honeymoon phase that people talk about. Yeah. And that's when testosterone and estrogen, dopamine in terms of addiction and reward, cortisol, your stress levels go up, you get the heart flutters, everything goes on throughout that 18, 12 to 18 months. And as we yep. said, your prefrontal cortex, the good old CEO, it shuts down. But Sam, as you know, the love transforms. It goes from what we would call passionate to compassionate over that one to two years where the angst and stress stops and your love, it starts to become deeper, not as euphoric, so to speak, as the early stages of romance, but um, it becomes a really interesting situation of what a relationship actually starts to look like after that, uh, that initial stage. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is a great recap. It's super interesting to changes. And the other thing that I think is really interesting from a brain perspective. And let's just go into the brain a little bit is the fact that love in the brain is uh, a reward. So when they did a study and they found that when people were deeply in love with someone and they saw a photo of the, their loved one, for me, if I saw a photo of my girlfriend, the reward centers of the brain lit up. They were just hyperactive. You're thinking about areas like the, the ACC, 
um, and other parts of the basal ganglia in, in the entire reward system were activated. So love is associated with this social reward in the brain, which is possibly why it feels so good to us and why it's so intrinsically human. But I do know that it's also not only related to rewards, but other neurotransmitters and hormones in the brain too. Exactly right. And like, as you said, that, that whole idea of love being addictive, uh, which you know, I'm mm. kind of going through at the moment, I must, I must say, but we can save that for later. Yeah. <laughs> Very juicy. Uh, but, <laughs> but there were two that we didn't speak about uh, in much detail last week, which was oxytocin no. and vasopressin. And I wanted to highlight yeah. that uh, in our discussion today, Sam, because these are super important. Um, that being first with oxytocin, it's actually largely released during sex and it's heightened by skin to skin contact. People know this as sort of the endorphins, Um, but it's an interesting one now that people are going to be physically apart. I like Mm. yourself that sex is not actually uh, possible to occur. Um, And so therefore those feelings of contentment, calmness, security, often associated with bonding, it's not able to necessarily take place, Um, which becomes a hard one with something like oxytocin, which is almost the thing that uh, keeps the romance, so to speak, alive for those longer term relationships as well, which is interesting. It it is. It's it's the hug hormone is what they, they call it. Just want to hug you, mate. Yeah, I just want to hug you. <laughs> but this, the second one, though. The second one was vasopressin. Yeah. Yeah. A very interesting one. I think uh, the, the study I would like to speak about with you, Samuel, I'm going to call it promiscuous prairie voles to quote the late great. <laughs> Thank you. Nelly Furtado, spot on. Um, yeah. And that. <laughs> I, I had a feeling you were to do that as well. And I really, really appreciate it. I like, I kind of set you up for that one. So thank you for taking yeah. advantage and, and slam dunking. Very much. Thank you for the love. <laughs> so welcome. Alley-oop. Love it. Basketball metaphors, brain tools. It's got to go in. <laughs> so promiscuous prairie voles. I think it was about 2011, 2012. Basically what they looked at is they found that monogamous prairie voles, uh, please look them yep. up. Very, very cute. Um, are known to have high levels of receptors for the neurotransmitters, if you will, of oxytocin and vasopressin. What was very interesting though, and I think you're going to enjoy this, Samuel, is when you got promiscuous montane voles, the male, male voles, and they dosed them with oxytocin and vasopressin, they actually yep. adopted more monogamous practices of their prairie cousins. And what becomes very interesting is with, uh, I suppose, over the past 10 to 20 years, monogamy has been really pushed as a more societal invention, but there's some very clear evidence. And I know it's a prairie vole as an analog for humans, which is a tough one sometimes, but it might mm. not be just a societal invention. It might be a very clear interaction between your environment and biology and the role it plays in long-term relationships. Well, so you're almost saying that there's this neurotransmitter that could be responsible for long-term relationships and monogamy. Spot on. Yeah. Not just a thing that's pushed onto us, uh, a genuine possibility, uh, as I said, um, and the role that it plays over time, which is so interesting that when vasopressin and we talk about oxytocin, communication is obviously at the key of all these growing, that vulnerability yep. and trust with somebody. And I know you spoke about, you know, and thank you for your honesty and candor um, in the challenges with, you know, communication in your relationship. I'm just, mm. I don't know. This is my curiosity. If I can ask, like, why is that the case? If I can ask. Yeah, well, I've noticed this myself, but most people will notice this at the moment. When you're communicating digitally, you lack context. And what I mean by that is mm. most communication relies on nonverbal cues. It's more than just words. So there's a lot of research out there and it's quite uh, controversial, the exact proportion, but they estimate between 70 and 93% of everything communicated is nonverbal. So 70 to 93%, which is 
yeah, it's huge. incredible. So it's mostly, so, you know, the brain integrates sensory cues simultaneously. So everything you see, you hear, you touch, you feel is processed at the same time to create this cohesive perception. And when you think of it, when it comes to something like communication, when you're mm. talking to someone, the way they're moving the head, the way the micro gestures happen on their face, the way their shoulders are rolling and the tone is moving all add up to how you interpret their communication. And all those nonverbal cues or a lot of them, even on video are totally lost, which makes it so much harder to emote with another person. And so I think that's probably like, it's part of the biggest drivers that it's so hard to communicate with people right now. I I was sorry. I was just jumping in there because I, it makes so much sense that we are pattern recognition machines. And what you're doing Mm. is we're taking away data points that we'd normally use to create that story. And so that limitation, if you will, of the modes and the sensory modes, as you said, makes it incredibly difficult to reach, especially for someone you genuinely care about. Like if you genuinely care about them and you, you, you get used to the patterns and the habits that you're used to seeing and hearing, and now it's gone. Now it's completely removed given, given COVID-19 for certain people. Totally gone. It's almost like we're so used to watching uh, HD color TV. And right now we've got black and white. And so we've just lost all this, all this color. You were the analogy king, the analogy king, color, some color commentary. I love it. It is color commentary. So it's so much harder to connect. And we are going to talk a little bit more about the problems with some of the specific tools, uh, zoom shout out, love you and hate you at the same time in our next section on brain problems. So as we move into the next section here to talk about some of the both macro and micro problems when it comes to, uh, I suppose, relationships uh, right now, given COVID-19, but just generally. And Sam, I've uh, taken more of a macro approach to this, looking at some of the the major issues. Oh, I want to get big picture. You know that. Um, In Mm. terms of why love seems to be uh, and relationships seem to be struggling, like divorce rates generally and historically have been on the up generally. Uh, Australia's gone the opposite way, believe it or not. But I wanted to just put a few things to you to talk about why maybe it's quite difficult with COVID-19 and relationships at the moment. And the first one I wanted to run past you is that in reality, we are in an absolute sense, the richest we've ever been. Now, relatively, the gap between the rich and the poor has increased, but average life expectancy has increased by almost double, particularly in Australia. Um, If you look at um, the sort of, if you will, Australian Bureau of Statistics that I was looking up, in 1890, a male was expected to live till 47 years of age and females 50.8. 2016, now, which is what, about 100 plus years later, males are now at 80.7 and females at 84.9. So there's been a 30 to 35 year increase in the average lifetime that we're having, which is pretty nuts when you think about it. That's crazy. And so how does that kind of uh, tie into love and relationships? I imagine that would make it a little bit harder maybe or... Look at you. Good question. Love it. Um, the, the, what I would posit is now that relationships, if you're living longer, relationships and this whole notion of the life partner that you'll be with for the rest of your life, it's got to go longer. So traditionally, if you're only with yep. for 47, you know, 50 years on planet Earth, maybe it was 20 years, maybe it was 25 years. Now we're expecting it to last 
30 to 45 years. And the probability is actually going against you in terms of one relationship lasting mm. your lifetime. Like looking at in Australia as an example, um, the average age of marriage is about 32 for males and 30.5 uh, for females. And the average marriage length is 12.8. So when you really do that, if you do live to 80, the average age, that means you need quote unquote, three to four marriages, three to four relationships to get through to the end. And so it puts into question this whole notion of, um, you know, the lifetime partner, not having a crack at it in any way, shape or form, but yeah. it is the probability is actually working against people, even though our romantic view says, Hey, you and me, baby forever. <laughs> we're forever. We're forever. But it's, I mean, we're forever based on these extended lifespans that you're talking about forever is now three times what forever was. Correct. And then when you tie that in with the second thing we've noticed is that the romantic movement that happened in the 1800s, 1800 to 1890, where literature and art, this whole romantic view, Oscar Wilde came to be. And the romantic script of love, as we spoke about last week, the, the story you create when you match with somebody on something and there's a white picket fence and everything, um, it becomes quite delusional. And like, for example, I just want to give you sort of two points if I can. Like we think yep. this romantic view, we should understand one another intuitively. If you meet the one, it should just work. You don't need to work on it. It'll just happen. Um, and I know what your thoughts are on oh that, God. but it's, it's a very, very salient thing in conversations I've been having with my friends lately. Yeah, Def, I totally agree. I hear it so often and I think it's just so much more nuanced and complex than this idea of the one, which is definitely being propagated by the likes of Disney and, and other media these days. Oh, my Disney film was Hercules. It was Hercules all the uh, way through. Megan, Megan Hercules. I was like, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm a big Moana fan. I know that's more oh. of a, a recent addition, but love what they've done. Absolutely. And I think the, the only one that I just wanted to highlight as well with this romantic view of, of love is that it's almost as if, you know, you and your partner should have no secrets. You should spend constant time together. Work shouldn't get in the way. They're our soulmate, our, our best friend, our co-chauffeur, our co-parent. There's all these titles that this person comes with. And one, it discredits yeah. the um, non-romantic relations you have, because in reality, your non-romantic relationships are probably going to last a lot longer than your romantic ones based on quote unquote, the data. But the consequences yeah. of this can be pretty, pretty rife. Like we become so deeply hopeful of marriage we think we're the way we feel on day one is the way we're going to feel on day three six two zero right we get lost in the future and yeah. we miss out on the present and that assumption is my last point that it'll just happen means that we don't work on the relationships we have we stay in the dream of the relationship which ties nicely into you know communication which is the, the crux of it all it really does. It's that unrealistic expectation of what a relationship is meant to mean and, and what it is these days, um, which is made even more hard, more difficult, I should say, by the current nature of communication right now. And macro perspectives, I'm getting down really micro. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to get real down. I'm going to get really micro. This is why we work so well together, mate. It's macro, micro, potato, macro, potato, potato, yin, yang. <laughs> I, I had some feedback once that said, you guys are just playing... Uh, Table tennis, ping pong, but with brain facts. And I said, yes, we are. Thank you. That's great. Uh, that's going Volley on the wall. That's going on the wall. That's uh, control S that one. But I'm going to get really micro. And that's because it's something I've felt personally, um, somatically within myself and have noticed with lots of my friends too. And that's the fact that we're all currently experiencing this phase called brain drain, this Zoom fatigue. I don't know. Is that the same for you, Kieran? Maybe, oh. maybe not. 
spot on though. Like, look, I love speaking to you. I'd rather spend time with you than uh, with you in person than uh, over this <laughs> Zoom call. But it's tiring. Like, you get to the end of the day after like six meetings or just six oh, conversations man. with people, and you are knackered. Right? You're so drained. But how come that doesn't happen in person? You don't get that same level of fatigue. And that's mm. a question I really wanted to know is like, why do we get so so tired when we're on uh, video calls, specifically, you know, with people we love or with people we're trying to communicate with? And that's because our brains have to work so much harder when chatting via video call. And this drains the brain. What do I mean by so much harder? Well, the first one is a you're probably staring at a screen. I mean, we're staring at a screen right now while we're talking to each other. And there's a, there's a screen staring uh, phenomenon which puts strain on your eyes and therefore on your brain. Uh, it's mm. called eye strain from screen staring just because of the way the light is perceived. So that's, that's the number one thing. But more importantly, remember how we talked about the nonverbals before and how much yeah. of communication they make up. Well, when you're watching someone on a Zoom call a video call your brain is trying to process all the nonverbal cues they're giving you but yeah i don't know about you it's pretty hard to do because video oh, yeah. is not real <laughs> <laughs> like, people move and, and their face changes and their body but it's a couple seconds delayed and then and so the, the brain is freaking out because it's spending so much effort and energy expending all this energy energy trying to interpret these broken disjointed cues these visual yeah. cues and that's what's creating a lot of this uh brain drain it's really working over time to process this and it's it gets gets even more interesting Kieran, when you think about gallery view yeah, yeah. talk to me gallery view we're on gallery, gallery view. we're on we're on gallery view right now aren't we we're, we're on gallery view right now but there's <laughs> only two of us so it's a little bit different. Yeah, that's fine that's fine <laughs> But, but when you think about gallery view and you probably think about this in context of, you know, maybe you've got catch ups with your friends and you've got a whole bunch of them on your screen or you're at work and there's a whole bunch on your screen. It is really tough to pay attention. It's so hard to focus. And that's just awkward. It's, it's so awkward, awkward though. Right? It, there's like six awkward. people who talks. When do you talk? Should I talk? Right? Well, let's have a conversation with me and another person while five people watch it. Oh my God. <laughs> it is so awkward, but it's also really tiring. Yes. And the reason it's really tiring is because your, your brain's visual processing center is essentially flicking through all these different faces to try to interpret meaning and pull, pull together these verbal cues and visual cues at the same time. It's like you're trying to concentrate on 10 people talking to you, making facial expressions. But when we're in real life, when, when we're in, you know, in person, you can only really look at one person at a time. It makes so much sense though, because we're going to be talking about attention next week and that switching cost, oh, yes. if you will. Yep. So switching costs between like that rapid switching where multitasking is more a myth. In reality, you're just switching rapidly between the different screens on that gallery view, which is definitely contributing to massive fatigue. Your brain's working overdrive to find meaning through stuff that doesn't have it. That's exactly right. And so they've actually come up with a, there's a, a psychological phenomenon now called continuous partial attention, which they say it's like cooking and reading at the same time. And you know, your group video chats engage this type of brain multitasking, which has those task switching costs that you just alluded to. Um, and every time you switch between a face or try to interpret these visual cues, you, you're essentially expending energy in the brain, which is why it's so right. tight. Why it's so tight. And more importantly, why we have such a problem with misattribution of meaning. Oof. And I find this in, in my own life and communicating right now, um, you know, with my partner or with my workmates, 
because we're lacking that emotional context of the person being in front of us and the environmental context of seeing how to interact with other people, it's so easy to misinterpret what someone's saying. You get a text message or a Slack message <laughs> or a WhatsApp message and you think, oh my God, how could they have said that? Like, how, how dare you? And then it turns out they were joking, but you didn't hear that in their tone because it's, a, it's text on a screen, not words out their mouth. And the so there's this like, stop. oh my God, or the K, like, oh my God, why nah, did you just oh, say that to me? Don't like that. I don't like the single K. If you give me double K, Triggered. don't do triple Triggered. K, that could get awkward. Just give uh, one K. <laughs> it's so bad. And the other problem is, you know, everyone's stressed right now. So we're all experiencing this amygdala hijack where the, the freeze or flight part of our brain, mm. the amygdala, which we talked about earlier. So go check that out on the stress episode, um, the wellbeing episode, where that is hyperactive right now. So we inter- we're looking for more cues of threats and danger in our environment, which makes it so much easier to misinterpret what people are saying when they're texting us because we don't have those environmental cues. So with these two things, right, with this really draining method of communication via video and with the, ability, like the, the constant misinterpretation of meaning, right now it's super hard to be in a relationship and communicating with people, um, whether that's romantic or otherwise. It's so true though. And like, let's be, let's just be frank. Relationships are hard. <laughs> like yes. I, they're, they're not easy. And like, I think as you, as we spoke about, you know, you incorporate living longer, the romantic movement, plus what you're talking now being digitally changing the way we communicate. It's very clear that the brain tools we need to speak about, which we're about to give and talk about is centered all about, you know, communicating clearly uh, and very mm. effectively with your partner because that becomes so important. which we're about to talk about in the next section on brain tools. All right. And now for everyone's favorite section, uh, the six brain tools for relationships and communication right now. And I've got some really nitty gritty little tips and tricks based on brain science, but Kieran, I know you've got some you've got some brain tools that are a little bit more high level, but incredibly useful right now. Oh, Sam, you're just too kind to me. I'm excited for this first one, to be honest, because I just yeah. did it uh, on the weekend, or I said yesterday, and it was very, very useful. And that's brain tool number one: do an annoyance audit. Okay, well, what's an annoyance? I see you. I saw you. I saw you lean in an annoyance audit, but I suppose the key thing in a a harmonious relationship is to understand the importance of what you contribute to it. It's very easy to attribute when stuff goes wrong and externalize the blame as opposed to looking inside and saying, Hey, what do I do that causes tension within this relationship? Because as we've discussed on many occasions, like we're not perfect. Humans are inherently flawed and we have ticks, heuristics, biases and habits that we bring to every relationship. And so when a relationship is to thrive, not just survive. It is the compromise between those two things. And the quote that sets this up to really explain the annoyance audit is Marcus Aurelius, you know, stoic philosophy. And he says, be tolerant with others and strict with yourself. And I think that whole notion of individual responsibility being a key driver of collective harmony Mm -hmm. is a really important vignette for when we get into the annoyance audit. So Samuel, can I tell you how this works? Yeah, please. Cause I think I need to do one. (laughs) <laughs> I did. I did mine. It was not, it was grim viewing. I'm going to be honest with you. And I did this oh, more yeah. in the context of the house man I'm living, who is very, very important to me, obviously not in a romantic relationship, but uh, an absolute no. legend. And what we did or what I did is sat down with pen and paper 
And what basically uh, I did or what uh, the whole annoyance audit is, is to list all the things you do, hypotheses, that might frustrate your partner. And I think these are the things like we know what annoying ticks we have generally. We just don't like to look at them um, a lot of the time. And if you, when you list it and you see it for what it is, it's about bringing conscious awareness to the role you play in when stuff goes wrong. So to give you some platform questions, Sam, it's like, what is some annoying things you do? What is your partner's reaction? What's your reaction yep. to your partner's reaction? And then very clearly, what can you do structurally to stop this thing from happening? Like, can I ask you off the top of your head, what's one thing you think you do that's annoying that might uh, annoy your partner that's in your control? Uh, where, where do we start? Okay. <laughs> okay. <don't> you... <laughs> no, no. Here is my parchment I, I have, list. <laughs> I, have one. I have one. So I wake up a lot earlier than my partner. I get up, you know, 6am, 7am most mornings. Cause that's my, how my body clock works. Shout out to episode one on sleep. Go check it out. Um, and often I'll, I'll hit my partner up in the morning and be really excited to talk about, you know, really intellectually complicated things. And <laughs> I can so me, imagine this. <laughs> oh, right. And then she'll say to me, Sam, it's 8am. I just woke up. Can you please stop? And so fair enough. And it annoys her. And I, I'm so guilty of it. So there's one thing I do. Thank you for your candor and your honesty. But I think, as you said, like the specific examples of that and bring it to conscious awareness is important because the, the, the way this works is if you can understand the things you bring to it that might be annoying to your other partner and yep. think about how you can mitigate those things, then in reality, it decreases the chances of having those silly, pointless fights when tensions are high and work's been difficult and so on. So for me, it was leaving books around the house. Like I'm the classic, I have about 55 books around the house that I just leave there and it's a little bit annoying. So bringing that to awareness, trying to stop doing that may lead to, yeah, a, a more harmonious uh, relationship looking inward as opposed to, to outward. But I know, Sam, uh, one thing that you looked at was it's all good and well to look at, you know, the um, things that we do that's annoying, but you want to leverage at the end of the day, you're with someone that you love, someone that you care about. There's got to be some positives that we can leverage into why you're in this relationship in the first place. Uh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a really salient point. They're doing an annoyance audit because it's so easy to get lost in our own behaviors. But what if, what if you want to cheer up your, your better half or your friends or your workmates? We're, we're losing a lot of that face-to-face communication and that, you know, the good morning you would usually have walking into the office where you see your friends and you see your workmates. So how can we replace that? Well, brain tool number two, shoot out some voice notes in the AM. Send out a voice note in the morning because voice conveys emotion much more than text. And we talk about context before and emotional context. And Kieran, I know I've sent you plenty of these before. Have you ever? <laughs> I have. I have. And how, and how do you usually feel after hearing one? Actually, genuinely spryly. Like it's a very nice surprise yeah. and I genuinely mean that. Yeah, it's, it is such a nice surprise. And here's the reason why. It's emotional contagion. So when, you, when we speak... And when someone else hears you speak, there's this process of neural entrainment where their brain locks onto your sound waves. And through this neural entrainment, through locking onto the way you sound and your tone and how you convey that message, their brain synchronizes with you. So when you send someone a message in the morning, a voice note that's super upbeat and super excited and super positive, they can't help but feel amazing. They just can't help it. And it's such a great way to brighten someone's day that you, you can't be with physically. So for me, with my girlfriend, we're currently apart physically and I, I can't just walk into you know, her, when, her room when she wakes up and say, hey, good morning, I love you. So instead, I'll just send her a little voice note in the morning and it's like almost like being there because I'm still conveying that emotion. 
So how can you use this? Set the tone, set the mood, amp up your energy to 10 and just send out, you know, four or five voice notes in the morning to people you care about because it'll make their day. And I've also found that it opens up this channel of communication between you and them that a single text message never does. Absolutely. I was, that, that point, that last point you said, I think is so important because it is, it's like that real romantic moment shows that we need to do grandiose things to make our significant other happy. But the reality is the small yeah. things and you hear it all the time, small things count, but just hearing your voice when they've had a, a bad day can be the, the, the pick me up that they, they need to just give it a crack and start a conversation. Totally. It's so small. I've had so many friends after I send them reach out and they respond and just say, you know, that made my morning. I'm so glad I heard that. And to think that all you have to do is send someone a voice note to change their whole day, to change their brain. So small, but it, you definitely have to be mindful of like what kind of communication styles people like. Right. And I know you've got uh, some stuff on this, Kieran. I, I do. Uh, I'm going to say something here, which is brain tool number three, know your attachment style. Um, and so the way I'm going to get so mathematical, it's going to sound so odd, but Sam, love is like a Venn diagram. <laughs> I just saw a bunch of like PTSD that popped up from all the mathematics that we had to do when we were at school together. Not ideal. Oh, yeah, I really like that. Yeah. For, for, yeah. I love the crossover, but it is love is like a Venn diagram where you've got, you know, circle a circle B and then there's an intersection. And I think the thing to be mindful of in any um, relationship is people have different, very varying attachment styles, too much overlap and it becomes one life as opposed to two independent lives, but not enough overlap and they become completely mutually exclusive. And Mm -hmm. the variable that contributes to that is how people actually go about their attachment and their security. And there were two uh, psychologists by the names of Cindy Hazan and Philip Shaver. Um, from the University of Denver. And they created a questionnaire um, that asked readers to identify three statements of which one actually associated more about how they approach love. And this was based on John Balby's um, in the the inventor of attachment theory in the fifties and sixties. So Sam, I'm just going to give you uh, one of the statements. I don't want to take too much time here, but basically one of the statements, statement A is the following. I find it relatively easy to get close to others and I'm comfortable depending on them and having them depend on me. I don't worry about being abandoned or about someone getting too close to me. Now, what that statement, if you've answered, yes, that resonates with me is that you are in a secure pattern of attachment whereby love and trust Mm. come easily. But there are two other forms called the anxious attachment and the avoidant attachment that leads people astray. And so I just want to give you the, the last one here just to give a little bit of color, which is option C, I'm somewhat uncomfortable being close to others. I find it difficult to trust them completely, difficult to allow myself to depend on them. And I'm nervous to anyone when I get close to Now, the reason I wanted to give those as color is because if you can understand you yourself, again, looking inward, what your attachment style is, you can understand how your anger and your fears of uh, abandonment, avoidance, and so on actually manifest themselves, and then be able to actually articulate that very clearly to your partner and understanding the perspectives you're coming from may lead to better communication, more effective communication, Mm -hmm. um, and just a a better relationship um, altogether, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And I've never really thought about it that way. So that's a really nice little reframe is to think about how you attach to other people. Yeah, spot on. And I think this is, and I'm going to be fully frank with you, C sums me up to a nutshell. 
like yeah. being the avoidant pattern of attachment when things, you know, danger of intimacy and so on. I just end up doing my own thing, especially when it gets quite scary to be open and vulnerable with you. And so having those really open conversations with people, even my friends and saying, Hey, this is how I am. If I'm doing it, please help me get out of this uh, funk by doing X, Y um, means that mm-hmm. yeah, uh, the collective is a little bit better. I love it. It's like almost giving the other side a bit of a map for how to in- interact with you and engage with you. Spot on. And that's why I think as we wrap up Brain Tool 3, um, knowing your attachment, we're going to get into the next three right after this break. Oh, yeah. And then we get to the last section of Brain Tools, the last three Brain Tools. We've got some great ones coming up for you. And the first one we kind of alluded to a little bit early kieran a little bit earlier do you, do you <laughs> remember my call out a little bit earlier yeah maybe possibly maybe. don't know i, I don't know i've i've been paying attention to this entire conversation to be honest with you <laughs> kieran's completely zoomed out he's zoomed out uh, I see Sorry. what you did there. Aren't you clever? <laughs> Coming in <Yeah>. hot. <laughs> <laughs> that is the perfect setup. You've just lobbed it up to me for brain tool number four. Forget the FaceTime. What, what is this brain tool about? Just swap all your video calls for audio only chats. That's all. That's it. Mm. That's the whole brain tool. Now, Interesting. Why might, why might you want to do this? Well, there's some research out there that shows we're more empathetic as humans when we swap video calls for audio only. So that is so interesting. Crazy. I did not mm. know this. I did not know this until I found some research done at Harvard. Um, it was by a professor, Michael Krauss, Krauss, who found that voice only communication enhances empathetic accuracy because when we listen to just voice, our attention for the subtleties in vocal tone increases. So we simply focus more on the nuances and the way we hear the other person expressing themselves. And also more importantly, when you don't have the video cue in front of you, mm. those visual cues, you stop worrying about how you look. You stop worrying about trying to perceive what the other person is doing with their face or that distraction in the background where your coworkers cats walking across the background. You listen, <laughs> you just mm. listen. So, to, to wrap this one up, it's a, a really short one, but for your next FaceTime session or your next video call with your, your people, people in your life that you love with your friends, your partner, with your nan, just swap it, swap that FaceTime for an audio call because there's a chance you'll be more empathetic. That's super. Oh, I really like that one. Cause well, I was looking away just for a little bit, but the reason was because there was a light bulb that went off my head, which is if you have voice only, you're removing all the clutter, the distraction, you're increasing your focus oh, and yeah. attention. So therefore you're more likely to actually be present in the conversation that you're having when you remove all those cues that sometimes get in the way, you know, when you see someone like flinch their head slightly and all you're thinking about is that flinch as opposed to what's coming out of their mouth and the contents of what they're saying. So it actually makes a lot of sense into it. Like when you put it together. Totally. It's all about that distraction and that, that visual distraction and visual noise for lack of a better word. Um, And it's, it's really, we're going to talk a little bit about attention next week in the podcast coming up, but it's, it's really just about, allowing yourself to hone in on the other person. Um, and I know there are some other ways to do this too, to really hone in on your relationship with the other person, with your partner, with my girlfriend, for example, and to figure out, you know, what is working and what isn't working. 
And there's actually some really cool brain tools you could use for that. What a hand pass. I'm catching it. Brain tool number five. I'm actually really excited about this one. Um, And it's brain tool number five, which is called the monthly review. Sounds daunting, but it's an interesting one. Sounds like a performance review. Is this HR? <laughs> oh, jeepers. I mean, everyone's going to think like, Kieran, you're really bringing your business acumen here to yeah, a relationship. Yeah. Let's just get really black and white. No emotion. Audits, reviews. I actually didn't notice this, but this it does, does look a bit weird. It's like, who is this person talking about? Oh, yeah, let's just do an audit because that's going to be serious. Wait, let's do a review. Oh, uh, okay, but I've got to explain this one and hopefully it makes sense. But right. earlier, Sam, you, we spoke about the romantic movement and how we can get very caught up in the idea of the one and everything. And there's nothing wrong with romance. Romance is something to be cherished. It is an amazing feeling. But as we get into that more, I suppose, com- uh, so compassionate love, your your relationship is going to become a partnership. There might be kids involved and so on and so forth. And the key thing that we are saying here is working on your relationship is just as important as in the relationship and being preventative and not reactive becomes really important. So what the monthly review is, is basically penciling into your calendar every single month or every two months with your partner and having an informal but structured conversation with them about how your relationship's actually going. These are the conversations that people sometimes hold onto. There might be something wrong. There might be something, an issue, and that normally turns into passive aggressiveness. And what we want to do is structure shapes behavior, not the other way around and basically having a conversation with your partner. So for example, there's five questions I've got here or six questions, Sam, that um, people can use to have this conversation. And it's not designed to be a a, a very, hey, let's go through a checklist. It's just platform questions to start a conversation. So one is, how would you rate our relationship out of 10 this month? As an example, why is it a 10? Um, What were some highlights from the month from what we did? What were some low lights? Um, How is our sex life going? As a very clear example. And people are afraid to have this conversation because they're worried about hurting the other person. But in the reality is you probably end up hurting yourself and the person more by not having these conversations. Like you never regret having a hard conversation. Like you never regret going to the gym, but once you go there and you do it and you realize how much of an emotional burden was on you in that time, it becomes really, really clear. And it's not just as my final one, it's not just this, you know, flimsy, let's just talk about stuff. Our question that becomes really crucial to it is what's one thing you would like me and us to work on for the next month. So it could be Sam, as you said, um, for your one, not bring up deep and meaningful intellectual conversations at eight AM in the morning and holstering them for three PM, possibly. Yep. Uh, for me, not leaving books around, <laughs> leaving books around. But while this Man. might seem really formulaic, um, it's actually a really important structure that can help facilitate better communication um, with you and your partner. What do you think? I t- by the way, I t- out of interest, I was just thinking. That totally makes sense to me because having that structure in place, having that kind of template or process for, for lack of a better word, takes a lot of the pressure off because I think what people find really difficult about those conversations is they don't know what they're meant to talk to talk about. They don't know how to talk about it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that, the, the way that you go into the conversation um, and how you conduct it obviously becomes really important. And I know mm. your last brain tool works very nicely uh, to support, you know, the approach one should take when entering such conversations. Absolutely. And even extending past these kind of conversations, but just any conversations right now. And my last brain tool, brain tool number six for today is ask yourself this question before you respond or before you talk. And there's a theory of mind question and theory of mind is just our ability to mentalize and uh, basically guess what someone else is thinking, how they're feeling. And this question is, what has happened in this person's day 
before they sent this message? What has happened in this person's day before they started communicating with me? The reason why this question is so effective, uh, according to research and various people in the fields, is because it forces you to start thinking about all the events that led up to that piece of communication. So all the events that led up to that text that you thought was furious. And then as you work backwards, you go, oh, well, hang on. This person, my partner, she just had a really stressful day at work because she told me at 2 p.m. that uh, you know her manager gave her all this work. And so it makes communicating back so much easier because it allows you to be empathetic. Gotcha. I really like it. So it's like almost that the, it's the art of taking a pause in a way. It, it totally is. And it's, I think of any time I've been alive in my short 26 years on this beautiful planet we call Earth, this is the most important time to practice this. And here's the reason why. We're all currently under stress with the uncertainty of COVID. Uh, and this totally alters our behavior. And the problem is there's this thing called fundamental attribution error. And it means we underemphasize the situation and context that lead to people's action to lead that leads to what they say. And we overemphasize their attitudes and personalities being responsible for the behavior. So what that means in the terms of COVID and right now is we say it's a person's personality or a, a fault of theirs, which is contributing to the way they're communicating with us. That angry message was their fault for being an angry person not they had a really rough day and that's where that message comes from and because we don't have that face-to-face communication right now we're missing all the chances to pick up on these cues maybe their shoulders are down maybe they're they've got a scowl on their face and so it's so much easier to misinterpret what they're saying so basically to use this brain tool all you have to do is before you respond to any message pause as kieran said wait five to ten minutes then ask yourself this question what happened in their day before this message? When you can answer this question, then you can respond. But just think, sit and think about it first. And it makes so much sense though as well, because we talk about in the, the interaction between the amygdala and our prefrontal cortex, amygdala mm-hmm. being you know, your, your threat you know, sensing system, your alarm system. But the reality is taking that pause allows the prefrontal cortex to come more into play once you've had that time to process and actually evaluate. And I think I'm reminded of a, a quote and I'm paraphrasing here by our favorite uh, human, Naval Ravikant, when he says, the ability, the ability not to get angry during conflict is a superpower. And I yes. totally, totally agree with him on that one. No matter what facet in your life, you will probably regret it. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's the hardest thing to do because in the moment when your amygdala is hyperactive and your entire brain is in you know, a panic mode, all you want to do is react, defend yourself. But you know, taking that time, like, like Naval said, and being able to react with empathy rather than anger is a, an amazing skill and a superpower, so to speak. So wrapping it up for this week, those are our uh, six brain tools. Kieran, what were your brain tools for this week? My brain tools were do an annoyance audit, actually look inward for all the things you do as opposed to what your partner does. Number three, yep. brain tool three, know your attachment style, actually understand how people uh, come into a relationship in terms of their security and modulate your communication accordingly. And brain tool number five, the monthly review where Kieran got very businessy, but having structured conversations with your partner that are penciled into your calendar with a glass of wine to uh, solve problems before they actually pop up. And your three, Samuel. Uh, and don't tell HR about that last one. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> uh, so brain tool number two was send a voice note in the morning to the people you care about, to the person you love as a way to brighten up their day. Brain tool number four, 
which was forget the FaceTime, trade your next video call for an audio-only call to be more empathetic and to focus more on the conversation and be present. And break tool number six is ask before you talk. Ask yourself what happened in this person's day that led up to this message because doing so forces you to be more empathetic, forces you to activate your theory of mind and therefore you'll be able to respond with more empathy in a time where we need empathy more than ever before, which takes us nicely into our 80-20 of this week. Kieran, what was your 80-20? What's the main takeaway for the listener? Main takeaway is empathy in motion is compassion and compassion is the key to a successful relationship, romantic or otherwise. And yourself? So deep. My, my <laughs> biggest takeaway, uh, and I am trying to practice this more myself, is humanize your communication with empathy. Reduce the channels that people are fatigued by share your emotions and, and try to put yourself in other people's shoes before you react. Because currently we're at the, the world is so uncertain. We're lacking so much context into how other people feel and how they're communicating that we need more empathy. I love it. Communication is key. Communication is key. And speaking of speaking of communication, let's communicate a little bit about our episode next week, which is going to be on. This is a pop test. Attention. Attention, attention, which will actually round out uh, this series on COVID specifically. So we're going to have some wrap ups there um, and we'll talk about why it's so hard to stay focused right now. But for this week, that is me done. That is us done, my friend. That is us. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Brain Tools. We've got three quick things to hit you with before you go. One, if you want to hear other Brain Tools, you can find our other episodes at the link below and on all podcasting platforms. Number two, if you like this episode, then give us a review on iTunes or Spotify only if it's above four stars. And number three, you can go ahead and join the braintools.mn.co community where we'll post a complete brain guide based on this episode, plus a ton of other resources. Best of all, it is completely free. Cannot wait to see you next episode. And until then, bye for now. See you next episode.